Hello there. Going through a divorce? Considering one? Sorry to hear that. But here you are. Welcome to Splitsville. You'll find Splitsville to be a pretty unique place. A new world, really, with its own rules, its own expectations, and in many ways, its own language. But don't worry. You have a knowledgeable guide along the way. A family law attorney with three decades of experience under her belt. And now, here she is. Your host and guide, Lee Sellers. So hello. Today we are talking to Rebecca Richardson, Wyndham Capital Mortgage. And very excited to have Rebecca on board today. She has some wonderful information for her for her own clients and for our listeners. I uh, met Rebecca a couple of years ago and have found her to be a great resource to send clients to. I think everybody who, if you're fortunate enough in your marriage, your largest asset is often your real estate and the family home, a large percentage of people. So when we're working with divorce and separation, what to do with that home and who stays in it? And then what does the person who's leaving the home do for a substitute home, those are are really important conversations. And how you fund and finance these decisions even becomes more critical. So Rebecca has been a great resource to clients to be a partner in, in making those decisions when we're working together in the legal field. So Rebecca, welcome. Thank you for having me. I know you work with Wyndham Capital Mortgage, but why don't you tell the listeners specifically what your role is and and what you do for people who come to you? I am a senior mortgage consultant, so that means for the past 19 years, what I've done is help people qualify for mortgages, come up with a strategy, understand guidelines. We go by many names, loan officer, originator, it's all basically the same thing. We're here to help you get from point A to point B when it comes to anything to do with financing or refinancing a home. Wonderful. And so I always like to think of our, our year the the rough draft in some ways. You're where everybody gets to go through and kind of like do their application and then mark it up and keep fixing it until it's actually got the information in a format that is most likely to be approved. Exactly. That's one of the first steps is basically to say, you know, what are your goals for whatever you're doing? You're purchasing a home, you're refinancing a home. What is your current position in terms of income, assets, preferences on payment, sales price, all those kind of things. And then the way that I explain it to people that my job is, is to take all those mixed up pieces and put them in order like a Rubik's Cube. And then it goes through the normal process of being underwritten, which means the information that's presented is verified, matched up against loan guidelines, make sure that it meets those loan guidelines, and then the loan is approved. Wonderful. Well, you know, there's a lot of new information going out there for first-time home buyers, and that's a wonderful resource. But what I find is interesting is sometimes your first-time home buyer, they're not really a first-time home buyer, but it's the first time that they've had to do it on their own. They've bought their first home together with their spouse. And so it's kind of a different animal when they have to step outside of that financial partnership and relationship. And they're kind of almost going back to where they might have been in their 20s if they were buying it. So why don't you tell us, you were talking about mortgage guidelines, and we're going to be talking about this all in the context of you know divorce or separation. So why don't you talk about 
what makes those mortgages a little bit different or a little bit more challenging or what guidelines do you think are particularly relevant to people who are going through a divorce and separation? For sure. And to echo what you said is a sentiment that I hear a lot of times when I'm working with clients that are going through separation or divorce is, I own a home, but I don't know what I'm doing. And it's in the midst of everything else going on, it can be very unsettling to acknowledge, admit that you don't know what you don't know, or you don't have your partner there that maybe either they handled it or it was just a sounding board or things like that. So try to always give that reassurance that I understand being in that position. I understand that mindset. And that's part of why it's my passion of working with clients that are separated and divorced, because it takes a certain finesse to kind of understand that, you know, what it's like to be a homeowner, but maybe you don't understand what this exact process is like. For clients that are going through a separation or divorce, how that process then intersects with mortgages tends to, if there's going to be discussion or later, if there's going to be an issue, meaning that something maybe had already been settled out, and then they're coming to me to kind of execute on whatever it is that they want to do, refinance or buy. Most of the time, those topics fall into either dealing with income in the sense of child support and alimony, dealing with any kind of joint or shared debts. And then also there's kind of a, a special guideline that's that's particularly for people who are separating or divorced when it comes to an equity buyout as a part of a refinance. So most of the time, our conversations around just normal mortgage guidelines go a little bit further in one of those or several of those categories. Well, let's talk about income first, because it comes up a lot in two different ways. But when we've had one household combining incomes and living off a joint, incomes and joint checking accounts. And now we're getting ready to end that. Sometimes still redistributing that income via, like you said, child support or alimony. And so this topic would be important both to someone who is paying it and someone who's receiving it. So why don't we talk about how child support and alimony count as income for a recipient and what the impact is on a payor as well? Perfect. So the biggest thing is going to be around time. And that's that's how long has that child support or alimony been received. As kind of a side note to that, let's say that my client is, you know, refinancing or purchasing a home and part of the income that we're going to be basing that loan off of is income that they are that they are earning by re-entering the workforce. Perhaps they've been out of the workforce for a while and now they're re-entering the workforce in order to count income after there's been a gap of employment. They do have to be at that job in most instances for at least six months. So that's one of the timelines that sometimes we're looking at as far as when we can move forward with a new mortgage. But specifically to child support and alimony, it depends on the type of loan that that borrower is going to get. So if they are getting an FHA loan, which sometimes is the right fit for them, then that has a shorter timeline. They can Once they have documented receipt of child support and alimony for at least three months, then we're able to proceed with using that income as qualifying income. If a conventional loan is, is the best bet, meaning that it, or loan amount or rate payment, all those kind of things, if a conventional is the right bet, then they do need to have that income for at least six months, documented receipt, regular payment, and before we're able to, to close on that loan. So part of the reason that that's helpful to understand is sometimes clients come to me and the, and the situation has been is maybe they're still in the marital home and some of the obligations like the mortgage or child care expenses or just living expenses or things like that might have been paid by the departing spouse. And 
they're paying those bills, which is, is pretty equal to what that child support and alimony is going to be or, or is planned to be, but it doesn't count because it's not going into the recipient's bank account. So you have to actually document those regular transfers or those regular payments into the recipient's account in order for that income to be, to be considered qualifying income. It can't be supplemented by paying bills and things like that. So that's sometimes where I think I see things get tripped up. Sure. So if your spouse says, hey, the six-month car insurance payments, premiums up this month, why don't I just pay that? And, you know, or why don't you just pay that for me and take it out of my child support? That's actually a mistake. Exactly. For purposes of trying to then use your child support for income. Exactly. Because it's, again, at the end of the day, guidelines tend to be pretty, pretty black and white. And if it says that the, you know, spousal support is 3,500, we're going to be looking for 3,500 coming into that account every month. That doesn't mean that it has to have happened for us to say, start the process, but we have to make sure that before final loan approval can be given, let's say that you go under contract for a home once you've received that fourth payment or maybe that fifth payment, as long as that sixth payment is received prior to final loan approval, that's fine. But it's, the timing of all of that is, is very important. So what if you are the one paying it? So you're going in to apply and you've got your W-2s and you've got your pay stubs and you're not paying through wage withholding. So it's not, it's not showing on your pay stubs. What does, you know, the mortgage guidelines, how do they impact what your obligation to pay is? So one of the questions that gets asked on a loan application is, do you have any kind of obligations or are there any kind of obligations like child support and alimony that does have to be disclosed because the name of the game when it comes to mortgages is documentation. If it's not disclosed, the most time we're going to see a transfer occurring. So it's best to be upfront with it so we can make sure that we're factoring that in from the beginning. It's not a surprise. Most of the time, it's whatever the situation is right now. So sometimes if there is say decreasing amounts next year or in two years or things like that. We do have to go off of what the situation, what those payments are now. Okay. So even if you had some sort of step down provision or it was already clear in the order, child support is being reduced in 12 months because everybody already knows the child's graduating from high school or the alimony is starting high and getting lower because it's anticipated that the receiving spouse has re-entered the workforce. You're going to have to deal with what it is at the time of the mortgage application. That's right. It's, it's what the situation is right now. So when it's on the payer side, it's what is the situation basically as of the note date, as, as of closing. And then for the recipients, it's more what has happened and what will happen. So that's where part of it leads into a big piece or where sometimes I see things get tripped up is around continuance. And that means how long are they going to receive the child support and alimony because they do have to receive it for at least three years from closing. So sometimes how that can kind of sneak up on people is if, let's say that maybe child support is, is being received until a child finishes high school. Well, if they're a sophomore, then you're short those three years. And even though the income may at this time be significant, and regular and all of that, if it's not going to continue for those three years, and unfortunately, that doesn't meet guidelines and it's not going to be income that we can use. What about when you have somebody who is either for alimony or child support receiving a percentage of commissions or bonuses? Like we live in a banking town and a lot of the banks for many positions, they structure their pay heavily on commission and their base pay is actually not 
nearly as sizable as the commissions they're receiving. So if you've got somebody who's paying all year based on base pay and then doing a percentage of the income, how does that work? First of all, if it's a new arrangement, so the recipient hasn't received any of the, you know, the percentage of commission or bonus, most situations there isn't a basis there for us to count receipt because there's not, there's not a history of receipt. So there's not really anything for us to document. We can document the payer's receipt of their bonus and commission. We have the agreement that says a percentage, but most of the time it, it's not considered stable income because it hasn't actually been received by our client yet. So it doesn't meet that three year or that three month, six months, you know, that sort of, that sort of standard. If it's something that they have received for one to two years and we have a history saying, okay, January 15th of last year, they received a bonus of X, then we can average that out as income over, kind of average that out as an annual income. And that can be factored in, but the recipient has to be able to document that they've actually received it. And it's the recipient, not, it doesn't really help you to come in with the proof of the payors receipts traditionally. It's it, correct. The actual applicants have been able to show they've received it. So if they've correct. received it for a couple of years, is that something that would work? Yes, it definitely can, which sort of seems extreme, right? Because if they don't make that payment, then they're going to be in contempt and, and then you'll be stepping back in and doing your doing what you do. But again, because the, the burden of proof is on the applicant to show that they've actually received those payments, there's no there's no history of that yet. Most people are aware that there's a tax law change where alimony is no longer tax deductible, and yet child support has some terminating factors considering emancipation and, and some things like that. So there's a lot of people who are going towards just using the word support, and they're not actually saying whether it's child support or alimony, they're not breaking it down. And there's a lot of reasons you can talk to why attorneys do that sometimes. But if you just have somebody come in and it's kind of just vague and it doesn't say whether it's alimony or child support, can that still count as income if they're not using the buzzwords? It can be used. We are going to be looking for even so arose by any other name, right? (laughs) So it can have another terminology, but it does have to at least have the framework around when do the payments begin? What will they be? When will they end? Or what are the conditions around when it ends? Because we have to make sure that, again, that at least the number of months receipt has occurred, that we can tie bank statements to that exact amount or more. And we know that it will at least continue for three years. So pretty much the same guidelines. Mm -hmm. So it, it can be called differently and just needs to make sure that it has at least a big part is when does it start and when does it end? I have some clients that are really, for a lot of different reasons, they're either interested or paying an alimony obligation in like one lump sum or in receiving one lump sum rather than taking, you know, the payments over the years. So, if you know, obviously that's going to not work with your three-year rule because you would arguably get it once. So can that be counted as income? There's sort of a creative workaround that, that fits guidelines. So what you can do with those type of payout, I guess, if you would, is that you can take it as a lump sum, put it into an annuity that does not have an age restriction on when distributions can begin, begin taking those distributions. And then instead of dealing with income guidelines around separation and divorce, then that essentially flips us over into guidelines around annuity income. And with annuity income, 
once you start taking distributions, you only have to take distributions for one month for it to be considered usable income. You have to document that there's enough in the annuity to give those distributions for three years. So that's where, again, the three years, that magical time does come into the picture, but you don't have to then say, receive it for six months in order to proceed. Well, that's interesting. Anybody who's ever applied for any sort of financing knows that your credit score and your your debt, your debt to income ratio is pretty important. So when you're married, some people have joint credit cards, literally real joint credit cards, and they don't stay joint usually. I mean, typically in divorce law, it's going to get given to one or the other party. So what do you do if you know, you're applying and your name is associated with a lot of debts, but you're not legally the one who's required to pay them. So what we're going to be looking for in that situation is an agreement that states that it's the other party's responsibility. So even though it's still contributing to your credit score, even though you're still, from a creditor standpoint, still legally obligated for it, from a mortgage standpoint of what we're counting in that debt to income ratio, we can exclude those debts. And we see that happen really most with cars. Yes. And that's where, again, kind of what I have seen in agreements that have caused issue later on is details matter. Being specific helps a lot. (laughs) So it needs to say specifically this account with this account number or this account with this creditor or this car with this VIN number, something that we can go back and document and say, yes, this specific account can be excluded because it's addressed directly in whatever agreement they've worked out. And so to me, that makes me think of the fact that it's equally important to do that if it's a car being provided for a child's usage, but it's got debt associated with it. You probably need to be very specific about who's responsible for the debt for that car. Yes. Yes. And that that goes to any jointly owned properties. If there's vacation home, land, things like that. If it's not specified who's being awarded that property and who's responsible for any of the costs, the debt, whatever, then we have to count. Or if it's, let's say that that something's trying to happen before there's been an agreement, then we're going to have to count that property's mortgage payment, that property's taxes, insurance, all of that, until essentially we have an agreement that says, no, it's not our client's responsibility, it's the other party's responsibility. I'm guessing that works a lot for timeshares too. Yes. (laughs) Yes. My favorite thing to have to try to divide. Yes. So what if you have somebody who really is just getting a lot of property? They don't want to. It's just one of those situations where they're really just dividing the assets and there's not going to be any support. Would the asset distribution that they get impacted at all if there was clearly a lot of assets, but they're trying to apply for a mortgage and they don't have any alimony or child support? The short answer is no. The longer answer is explain to people that mortgages work kind of like a three-legged stool. You have income, assets, and credit, and all of those have to be present for the mortgage to stand. Receiving a large bulk of assets, but then no no income, then we're looking at, okay, then how do we how do we kind of build that income pillar? Is it Doing the annuity, like I mentioned, is it having a co-borrower? Sometimes people have their parents or a sibling be a co-borrower so they can fill kind of that income piece. What are some of the things that you've seen 
as you're sitting here helping people, people are probably bringing in these documents and you're asking to see separation agreements and divorce decrees. What are some things that you've seen that were missing or were problematic when you're looking at at these documents? I mean, obviously, every attorney is a little bit different, but we also have a lot of people who are attempting to resolve these things for themselves and they don't even see an attorney. I would say that it falls into two categories. One is either not enough detail. So we need to know who's getting what down to account numbers, something that we can tie it together. So not having enough detail then means that in the absence of that information, we basically have to default to what the most conservative option is. And that's probably counting more debt that even if they say, hey, they've been paying this for the last six months, well, we still can't exclude it. So then that debt or or expense is going to have to be counted for them. Or not having the timelines match, not not kind of beginning with an end in mind. So it's, let's say that one of the parties is staying in the home and they either need to refinance or sell within the next three months. If again, we're back, we're coming back to the income situation. If we need six months of income in order to, to qualify for that mortgage, then you're sort of backing yourself into a corner that it just, it can't be accomplished. So you have to make sure that things are going to be in the order that they need to happen to meet both what, what the intention of both of the parties, that intention, and then also be able to meet what mortgages are actually able to accomplish. Because if not, then again, we're trying to kind of band-aid on some sort of fix, a co-borrower, a parent, a sibling to meet that guideline that can't be met based off of what the timeline has to be. So what about a person who they just don't get any legal documentation as to alimony or child support and they're ex-spouse is simply just making regular payments based on they have a good relationship and, you know, they're honoring this commitment. So they're making regular transfers, but there's no legal obligation. You know, how in that, that in that case, if we have 12 months of a continuous pattern, then we can count, we can count what they've received. So if, you know, it does have to be at least the same amount, something that we can show Let's say that they have been receiving payments for 12 months and the most recent six months, it's been stepped up by maybe $250. We can use the most recent six month average, but we do have to show receipt for at least 12 months. And that's because you don't have the duration in there. That's right. Yeah. So you're, you can't stick with your six month. Right. <laughs> right. Okay. It does. That's also sometimes then where we are getting into in the absence of an agreement, is it reasonable that they would continue to receive it? You know, is their child 17? Well, that's a great area because it's probably not going to continue. Is their child four years old? Okay, then that's reasonable to count. Buying out of of equity in a home, this is often, so we've talked a little bit about just a complete refinance where, you're, you know, and I, I think of that as when you're taking the existing liability and just one person's assuming it instead of the other people or both people. But sometimes people need to borrow extra money to either buy out their other spouse's interest or a portion of that interest. So are there any distinctions or differences when you're coming back in and you're not just trying to reassume the same debt, but you're going to have to yes. basically make a new loan for a different amount? Yes, this is one of my favorite kind of hidden gems in, in mortgage guidelines is if somebody is going through separation and divorce and part of their agreement is an equity buyout, then that amount can be included in the new mortgage as a debt, sort of just like, you know, the mortgage that they're paying off. 
but it does allow us to treat that mortgage as what's called a rate term refinance. We're refinancing, we're changing, we're refinancing to change the rate. We're refinancing to change the term. The rates tend to be better with a rate term refinance. And also it does allow us to go up to 95% of what the new appraised value is. So there, it allows them to tap into more of the asset to settle the liability associated with that asset versus having to tap into other 401k, retirement funds, things like that. And the reason that I like that as well is because a lot of times people think that, oh, for me to get cash out of my home to satisfy this requirement, I have to do what's called a cash out refinance. Cash out refinance will carry a higher rate and it also caps you at 80% of the appraised value. So it limits how much money they can actually get back. And most of the time, because of how that equity settlement is being calculated, they're then having to pull from some other resource, which could actually harm them long term by pulling money out of investments or things like that. So it would really help if the document was super specific that they're required. Yes. And most of the time, what we're looking for in this situation is for the agreement to say it's an amount, it's 20000 it's 30000 or it's a percentage of the appraisal that is done associated with refinance. Not all refinances need an appraisal. So either we can go ahead, even if one isn't needed, we can go ahead and order one. So it third party, you know, kind of establishing that value. Some people are satisfied if a realtor, maybe that they use to purchase at home, if they do comparative market analysis and say what the home is worth, we don't really necessarily care as long as whatever is, as long as whatever's in the agreement can be met that basically the parties are happy with how that number has been decided. There are, for a variety of reasons, there are people who aren't comfortable or they'll, they'll say, I don't trust my spouse will pay the bill. You know, that bill's in my name and that mortgage is only in my name and I don't trust them to pay it. And so I'm going to pay the mortgage, but I'm not going to give you the money to pay the mortgage yourself. Can you look at that as support when you're looking at the income if they're paying the bills? The person's getting the benefit of money, but they're not getting money. That's right. No, they have they have to get the money. So sometimes how I've seen that happen is there's a joint account that the money comes from the payor into a joint account. Then you see the mortgage go out. That's not as clear as it going from the husband to the ex-wife and then ex-wife paying the mortgage. So it it does muddy the waters for sure. But just paying the bill doesn't replace the income support. So what documents would you tell someone to bring in and when would you have them start talking to you if they were interested in buying out their spouse's interest or interested in keeping the home and moving the liability to their name? What do you guys need to see? We need to see any kind of equitable distribution agreement, separation agreement, any, however, however that asset and liability is being addressed. That's what we'll be looking for. I always tell people the earlier, the better. I have looked at agreements before they've even been signed because their attorney has advised, hey, make sure that what we're trying to do here is what we can actually do once this has been signed. So that's ideal just to make sure that we're all on the same page and it can be executed the way that it's intended. Again, earlier, the better, meaning that if let's say that they need to buy or refinance by next April, Absolutely happy to have that conversation now. Make sure that all those pieces are starting to fall into place now. So when that timeline that they have to hit comes up, that those pieces have already been put into place and we're not trying to, again, trying to band-aid on a solution. So what about payments that are coming out of joint accounts? Like the parties are still using a joint account. 
maybe one of them is exclusively using it and the other person isn't at all accessing it anymore. But does it make any difference if it's a joint account versus a single account? It depends what we're talking about. Again, it's, it's kind of like, is money being put in there to pay a debt? Great. It's always cleaner if it, those finances are separated. When it's something that is joint like that, and maybe only one party is using it, we're then going to be still defaulting back to either an agreement that's in place or ask for there to be a, an agreement put into place as far as who is actually responsible for what. Because I know some people, they just it, it's just an extra detail. You know, going to the bank and, you know, it used to be a little simpler to get somebody's name, quote unquote, off of an account. But a lot of times now, you know, right. you want to close it down and yet everybody's got all these automatic drafts scheduled. So people aren't, people don't move as quickly on that as they, they once did. Right. But as long as you can really track the money, if somebody's been paying their child support or their alimony into a joint account that their name's still on, you can still treat it as just the recipient's money. Correct. Because most of the time what we're actually seeing is the money go from the donor to a joint account. And then, you know, in a lump sum, then that the child support or alimony being moved into the recipient's account. So if, if there's kind of a middle, if there's sort of a middle stopping over point, because maybe there are shared expenses like medical expenses or support of a child at college or whatever the case may be, we're going to have to pay, typically pay for trail where that money's ending up. So I used to hear this, and I'll let you correct me because it could just be old, old rules. But I used to hear that mortgage companies were looking to have proof that the person who was applying had actually been paying the mortgage themselves for six months. Is there any, you know, guideline if you're coming into refinance where you have to prove that you had been paying it or you have any track record of paying it? It's not so much that you have to prove that you have been paying the mortgage. In the case of a separation or divorce buyout, you do have to have been on title. So you do have to be on title for at least 12 months. Okay. So in North Carolina, we don't really have a problem with that because the law generally provides, right. you know, there are some exceptions, but most spouses are on any deed to real estate purchase during their marriage. But in South Carolina, there's no rule about that. So if you're trying to go in, and refinance a house that your name isn't on and the, the order says that upon refinance or during the process it'll be deeded, is that going to be a problem because you're, you're not even on the deed? Right. But what we've had in the past is sometimes that looks like doing a quick claim to put the other spouse on title and then having to wait out those 12 months in order to then do the buyout, do the refinance. So obviously... We as attorneys usually always check the title. <laughs> it's title. Right. A lot of people do not know. They'll come in and you'll say, are both of your names on the titles? And only your name or your spouse's name. And they'll either tell me an answer that turns out not to be accurate when I get the deed. Or they'll honestly say, I just don't know. Sure. Well, when it's not something that you deal with all the time, who knows? Well, do you have any other advice that you would give separating or recently divorced spouses who are contemplating either, you know, a home purchase? My message would be just probably one of encouragement that a lot of times, because as long as, again, we can know what the end intent is, being involved in that preparation or being involved in that conversation early, a lot of times we can craft whatever needs to happen to achieve what their goal is. 
it can be very discouraging to come in and, and want to move forward with this next stage of your life. And certainly your home is a big part of that and be told, no, you have to wait. You have to wait three months, six months, maybe it's 12 months, whatever the case may be. So being able to kind of set those expectations early helps. But the nice thing is with, as you know, you know, when you're crafting agreements, everything's on the table. So a lot of times there is a way to make it work if we can get ahead of it. And just to, to understand, I mean, there are many conversations I've had with clients where they're not sure if, that they can keep the house or they're not sure that they can purchase a house on their own. We're not scary. I'm not a scary person. I am here to help. And that's what I love to do is to try to come up with a plan that helps somebody meet what their goals are. So Rebecca, if someone is listening to this that would like to get more information from you or maybe come and talk to you about what their plans are, what's the easiest way for them to find you? Because you know, Wyndham's a, a big company. Yes. So my individual website is RebeccaRichardsonMortgage.com. On pretty much all social media, I'm the dot mortgage dot mentor. So the mortgage mentor, you can find me on Instagram, TikTok. I'm on LinkedIn and Facebook. And I am licensed in nine states. So it's not just in the Carolinas. And certainly if somebody has a question and it's a state that I'm not licensed in, I've got a great network of colleagues that also know guidelines as well as I do that I can connect them with. Well, wonderful. Well, we'll have that information in our bio and, and show notes if anyone didn't write it down. But Rebecca, we thank you for being here and, and sharing all of this information for our listeners. It's very informative. And every time I talk to you, I learn something more. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. So there you have it. Another neighborhood of Splitsville explored. There's still so much to learn here, so I hope you'll tune in to the next episode. While Splitsville is not a fun place to be, thankfully it is full of helpful people, valuable resources, and sound advice, if you know where to look. See you next time. The insights and views presented in Welcome to Splitsville are for general information purposes only and should not be taken as legal advice for any individual case or situation. Nor does tuning into this podcast constitute an attorney-client relationship of any kind. If you're ready for compassionate and reliable legal guidance on your journey, contact Lee Sellers and her team at www.touchstonefamilylaw.com.